Daniel chapter 12, why don't you turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, remember when you were a little kid and you were tasked with uh, putting a, a big puzzle together? And you'd, you know, you'd start off with that sort of discouraging, just dumping out the pieces. And man, you know, especially you know, a more intricate puzzle, you think, man, how are you gonna figure this thing out? And especially some of those puzzles that were kind of nonsensical, you know, like it's, if it was a picture that had lots of you know, specific colors and shapes that sort of were recognizable, that made it easier. But some of those puzzles, like they purposefully make them hard. Um, but, you know, as you progressed through, you'd, you'd sort out all the ones with a straight edge. At least that's what I'd do, is find the straight edge pieces. And then I'd start trying to fit some of those together because at least you had an edge to go on. And, and, and eventually, if you, were, if you were careful, you could, you could make the frame. Uh, and then, then you had to fill in all the middle pieces, which would be a, a greater task still, but at least you had some points of reference and, and things started to come together. And I, I kind of feel like Bible prophecy, especially the way the Lord spells it out in the book of Daniel, that's the way it goes. You know, poor Daniel, he, he's the guy that poured the puzzle pieces out on the table. And that's why by the end of Daniel, he's kind of like, I don't understand anything what I just wrote. I don't get it. Uh, but he would go about the king's business and serve the Lord and walk with the Lord. But the prophecies would not be for Daniel's day. They would be for the future. But you and I, we get to see throughout history, um, you know, you might even say the straight edge pieces were put together when the Babylonians were conquered by the, the Medo-Persians and then the Medo-Persians conquered by, you know, Alexander the Great and Alexander the Great and the, the four generals, eventually the Roman Empire would come and, and you start to see the edge pieces all come together in the book of Daniel after Daniel long had died and gone to heaven. And then you see, you know, the unfolding of Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination of desolation when he smeared blood on the pig's blood on the temple. And, and you just see more of the picture come together. But, but even still, there's still a lot left that's undone. And, 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 and then at the end of the book of Daniel, it says, I just seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. And I believe that, you know, what, what history does um, for the book of Daniel is starts to put these puzzle pieces in place. And it starts to make sense. You gotta love, you know, what, what we see in these pieces as they're put together. And I hope that as you've been going through the book of Daniel with us, we start to see some of these puzzle pieces as we, you know, last week tediously went through Cleopatra and Mark Anthony and, and talking about some of those, you know, and all the Antiochuses and the various Ptolemaic, uh, you know, kings and rulers. And, and we covered a bunch of stuff and we, we sort of left off where the battle of Armageddon is ready to roll. Uh, they're at the end of chapter 11. And, and now we're, we see more and more of those puzzle pieces um, coming together. <laughs> uh, now, interesting, chapter 11, we went through a few things. And let's just do a quick review on some of this stuff. Um, uh, look, look, uh, look with me at verse 25. And the reason I wanna have you look at verse 25 is because I forgot to talk about it last week. How many of you guys knew that? Raise your hand. One, two, okay, good. People are honest here. I thought you got, I noticed, Brett, that you are not really a through the Bible teacher. Um, <laughs> but I get excited, you know, when I'm reading these and I kind of uh, make mistakes once in a while. And that verse 25, and this will help us review a little bit too. Um, this is one of the, you know, the um, Antiochus's, as at verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. Remember, that's the Ptolemies. Um, with a great army and the king of the south shall be stirred up 
to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for they shall forecast devices against him. Um, verse 25 actually is more of that thing we saw last week where the Antiochus empire and the, you know, or, um, or the Seleucids um, and, and then the Ptolemaic, the people down in Egypt, uh, when they were all battling back and forth. And verse 25 actually speaks of a specific event where the Antiochus uh, got a bunch of the family members for the Ptolemies to betray um, uh, that empire. Uh, so the Ptolemies were doing really well, but Antiochus did some uh, fancy finagling and it ended up being the Ptolemies' doom. And that's what it says, for they shall forecast devices against him. That's what happened there in verse 25. Again, just, just showing us the fulfillment of specific prophecies as it related to the Ptolemies and Seleucids. And then, you know, verse, verse 25, um, pardon me, verse 30, we saw, you know, we get start getting to Antiochus Epiphanes and talking about him. And what would be his downfall? Well, the ships of Chittim talked about there in verse 30. It says, for the ships of Chittim shall come against them, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant, so shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Um, verse 30 is talking about when the Roman Empire, that's the ships of Chittim, the early stages of Rome coming into the picture in world's history. But if you recall, Antiochus, when he realized he couldn't you know, go against those ships of Chittim or the Romans, uh, he realized he was really kind of stopped in his tracks. So what did he do? He made war against the Holy Covenant, the Jews and Israel and Jerusalem. And the reason that's an important thing is because that's exactly what Antichrist was gonna do uh, in the tribulation period. It's a picture. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. And we see Daniel's gaze go past Antiochus in the 170 BC era, um, all the way into our future still. And that's where verse 30, um, 35, uh, 36 starts talking about the future coming world leader, Antichrist. And we did that a couple Sundays ago, verses 36 all the way to the end of that chapter talking about Antichrist. Um, but all of those things we looked at last week are parallels to what's gonna happen with this coming Antichrist. But one of the things we saw is, if you recall, just, just as a quick review, um, and, and we, we, we talk about the abomination of desolation. That's when the Antichrist is gonna defile the temple in the future. But look at you know, chapter 11, verse 45. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Um, now we're talking about where he's set, settled in Jerusalem. Antichrist is gonna make his seat uh, of power there in Jerusalem, and he's gonna set it on the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion of the Jews. And we saw that. Um, by the way, that, um, the, the seas are the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea on the east. And Jerusalem is uh, over 2,500 feet in elevation. So it's the mountain, the glorious mountain of, of Jerusalem. Well, all that to say, uh, we saw that. Um, um, also in verse 44, we, we looked at a big event. The tidings out of the east uh, will come um, uh, out of the north, probably the Chinese and the Russians as we talked about. 
um, and they'll trouble him for he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. So this is where we start to see um, the, the nations of the world converging on Antichrist. Um, some of them will be against him, some will be before him. But it's all gonna culminate in the Valley of Armageddon. So that's kind of where we are at the, sort of the beginning of this, uh, this um, Valley of Armageddon. By the way, the 200 million man army that we talked about, we saw that you know, last week, Revelation chapter nine, verse 16. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them, which um, that's the King James way of saying 200 million um, uh, man army uh, coming from the east. And we talked about Radio P. King in the 60s said we can outfit a 200 million man army. And that was a big shocker when that happened. Uh, so this is, the, a lot of these prophecies are paralleling the book of Revelation. Um, and, and so the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, they're rightly sort of talked about as um, exposition on each other. Um, you know, Daniel is the key that unlocks Revelation. Others would say, no, Revelation is the key that unlocks the book of Daniel. Um, but I think both are true. And we're gonna see that tonight as well, the parallels from the book of Revelation. So really, uh, remember chapter breaks were added you know, centuries later after the Bible was put together. Um, and, um, and they're not always in the best spot. This is one of those places where chapter 12, you really could make it into one chapter. Chapter 11 is already really long. And so they had to find a place where they would have shift, shift the chapter. Um, a lot of scholars today would have said, we should have probably put the change of chapter just before verse 36 of chapter 11 and made that the final chapter. Uh, that would make more sense. But in their defense, when they're, they're putting the, the canon of scripture together and stuff, none of this made sense to them then either. So you have to understand that even the chapter breaks is a little hard to figure out until the time of the end. The closer we get to the end, the more we're gonna see the picture coming into focus, just like the puzzle. Remember when you'd get that puzzle starting to fill those pieces out, you're like, oh man, I know where everything is now. And you, you can dial, dial things in. I think that's where we're at. I think we're at a place in history now where much of the puzzle is actually put together. And the book of Daniel makes a lot of sense now if you take just a little time uh, to look at it. But you and I, we, uh, we have a few pieces that are yet to happen. Uh, and that's really what chapter 12 is about, stuff that we've, we've yet to see in the future um, of how it's exactly gonna unfold. There's still a few mysteries, but most of it makes sense. And we'll, uh, we'll make sense of that hopefully tonight. So. Um, we've got this, this uh, Daniel chapter 12. Let's take a look, verse one. It says, and at, the time, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was there, uh, was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Now this verse is kind of a summary of chapter 12. Uh, it's basically, you know, Michael's gonna stand up and do something. We'll talk about what that is in a second. There's gonna be a time of trouble. In fact, the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And then the people of Israel will be delivered, everyone that's found written in the book. This verse summarizes the rest of, verse, of chapter 12. Um, and then we get into detail. By the way, we see this, as, this is a Jewish way of handling things, by the way, when you talk topically of something. It's almost like, um, you know, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, there it is. 
and the earth became without void and without form. And, and then it's, it's like there's layers, you know, if, uh, like God created the heavens and the earth. But then it tells us how he did that. It's almost like the first circle was here and then it went out further. And then on the six days, and he explains you know, the six days of creation. Um, but then there's another ring. It's, it's a circular ring of ripple effects being described. So that's what's happening here. You know, chapter 12, verse one is kind of explaining, um, you know, the whole, the whole chapter or the end of this book. Um, so what's the first thing we see? Well, the first thing is, is Michael the archangel. At that time shall Michael stand up. Um, don't you love Michael? Um, I, I, I don't know uh, what he looks like, but I, I have a hunch he's fairly fierce. Um, we know that he uh, was the angel that fought against the prince of Persia, the angel or demonic entity of Persia there way back in Daniel chapter 10. Um, and, and, and we also know that Michael is very uh, linked to Israel itself. It's almost like you might wonder, is Michael um, always linked to Israel? Uh, protecting Israel, fighting for Israel, um, could it be Michael, who's the angel that stood up against the, you know, uh, remember Rab Shaka, the trash taka that we talked about there, the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem, 185,000 soldiers killed in one night by an angel, one angel. Was that Michael who did that? That was that the angel? I think it probably was. Uh, but Michael seems to be a warrior archangel, um, and, uh, and he's the one you don't want to mess with. Um, and also, we know that Michael is going to be the one to ultimately defeat Satan. Um, it's almost like you could say, you know, Michael's the SEAL Team 6 guy, and Satan was the worship leader at a church somewhere. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, who, who's going to win that battle? Uh, well, that's, that's what it was. God created both Satan, he's called Lucifer, and he was the most beautiful of all the angels, um, but he was also the one lifted up with pride. And ultimately, Michael's gonna be the one who will subdue him. And I always like to remind us as Christians to keep that in mind. Um, you know, God and Satan are not opposites where you have to be afraid, you know, that, that I hope God wins. No, God's just like, it'd be over with. Then why doesn't he do that? Oh, there's a long reason and, and he will, he will do that. But he, he's not even gonna be the one to do it. Michael's the one who's gonna subdue Satan, chain him up and throw him in the abuse. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But so, the, you know, Michael's always linked to Israel and he's always kind of this uh, warrior sort of uh, angel. And one thing that you have to remember is there is a spiritual battle going on. I think that sometimes we forget the spiritual battle of what's going on. You know, it reminds me of, you know, Ephesians six twelve, and we forget this. This is a one that we should all probably have memorized, you know, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, um, you know, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, so when you're in feeling attacked at work, is it a battle of flesh and blood or is it a, a principality and a power, a spiritual attack. And sometimes I think you and I have a hard time discerning where that's coming from. Sometimes I think we lash back at the flesh and blood when the battle's not even there. Um, maybe you husbands and wives, you know, you come home and you're, you're, you've had a spiritually embattled day and so you lash out at your spouse. Um, you gotta remember, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our battle's a spiritual battle and you need to keep it in that realm and use the spiritual weapons of our warfare. They're not carnal, but spiritual. 
to the tearing down of strongholds. We have to remember there's a spiritual thing going on. And, and this chapter sort of reminds us of that. It, it's not just locally in your life, but globally. And it seems that Michael the archangel is the one who's dealing with some of the big issues, um, including Satan himself. So when is this gonna happen? After you know, this, this tribulation period starts to wind down and come to the end, the second coming of Christ is when that battle of Armageddon is up and running. That's when Christ is gonna return, the second coming, Revelation chapter 19. And that's the time we're at here in this narrative. At that time shall Michael stand up the great prince <clears throat> which standeth for the children of thy people. Again, that makes me believe that Michael's kind of assigned to the Jews. Um, and we see that over and over in the scripture. Whenever Michael's mentioned, he seems linked to the Jews. And it says, there shall be a time of trouble. Um, it, it's it's, um, it's gonna be a tr time of trouble such as never there was since there was a nation, uh, even to that same time. What, what's, what's gonna be troublous about that time? Well, that's where the book of Revelation is interesting. We have exposition on this verse in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, you can remember Daniel 12 and Revelation 12. They go hand in hand. Uh, let's flip over to Daniel, uh, Revelation 12. Keep your finger here in Daniel and go with me to Revelation chapter 12. And this sort of explains some of that stuff that's gonna happen in Revelation 12. There in Revelation chapter 12, we'll start in verse five. Um, verse three and four talks about <clears throat> some of the images of Satan and horns and dragons and stuff. But it says in Revelation 12, five, and she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Anybody wanna guess who the man child is in this? Jesus, always the right answer. True. And who is the she that brought forth the man child? Anybody? Israel, right, right. So we, got, we have to define that. Um, and there's other passages where we have expositional constancy that kind of reminds us, oh yeah, that's who we're talking about here. But right here, I'll just tell it to you for speed. So she, Israel, brought forth a man child, Jesus, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Don't forget, Jesus is coming with a rod of iron. Um, uh, you might look up, you know, Psalm 2, verse nine, and other passages that speak of Christ in that light. But her child was caught up, that is, um, uh, you know, the ascension or the rapture of the church or both. Um, her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Um, and the woman, verse six, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days or 1,260 days. Now, now, this is a point of reference. We know what that is when, when Israel's gonna flee into the wilderness. Where's the wilderness? Petra is the easiest way of saying it, uh, but Edom, Modab, the modern day Jordan. Um, and they're gonna be there for uh, three and a half years. The last half of the, the seven year period called tribulation. The last three and a half years called the great tribulation, right? The whole thing's called tribulation. The last three and a half, great tribulation. Um, and, and here's where we kind of connect Daniel 12, one, verse seven. And there was war in heaven. And it says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. 
And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world and was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with them. Now, um, now let's kind of pause there in, in verse nine because you might say, what? Um, I don't get that. It says that Satan prevailed not, verse eight, and neither was there any place found anymore in heaven. Well, Brett, didn't that happen somewhere before even the creation of the earth? Yes and no. If you read the you know, book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah, which we did not that long ago, we know that there was a point where Satan was cast out of heaven. But we have to talk about this. And this is, this is um, something that you might um, wanna, wanna sort of you know, make note of. Um, because um, when it says there was neither any more place found in heaven in, in chapter 12, verse eight, um, what do you do with that? Did he actually, did he actually um, leave, go, leave heaven and then come back? I think he did, and I'll tell you why. When Satan sinned, or Lucifer in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, he was cast out of heaven um, and he became sort of the prince of this world there in the Garden of Eden, uh, the God of this world. But um, the big question might be, um, where is Satan now and where, where can he go and what can he do? Well, do you remember in the book of Job, long after Satan had been cast out of heaven, where do we see Satan in the book of Job chapter one? He's in heaven. Gulp, did he make it back? Well, kind of. Here's the thing, um, and this is a clumsy way of saying it, but I'm just gonna do it anyway because I don't know a better way. But when Satan sinned with pride, was lifted up and said, I will ascend above the heavens. I will, I will. I remember all that stuff we looked at last week. The Lord cast him out of heaven as far as his home. He was no longer at home or welcome in heaven as a, as a dwelling place. That was the end of that. But as it turns out, we know in the Bible that Satan does have access to heaven and he will until the very end when Michael the Prince stands up uh, here in, in Revelation in our, our text right before us. Um, so where is Satan? Well, he's, he's there um, uh, in heaven. Uh, and what he's doing is, he, remember what he was doing in Job chapter one? He was doing what the book of Revelation says, accusing Job. Remember that? He was accusing, Job's just following you because you blessed him. If you let me curse him, uh, then he'll curse you to your face, God. And he was accusing Job uh, there before the throne of God. So, so that, this starts to answer the question that you and I might wonder, where is Satan now? Um, a lot of people who are not really Bible students would say he's sitting on a hot throne down in hell with a pitchfork and his demons are all running around hell. Uh, no, that's not where he's at. He's, he, he's, he's dwelling, if you would, on this earth. That's kind of interesting. Um, he's dwelling on this earth. Uh, I think that's, that's something that we should kind of remember. Um, what, what does it mean, you know, dwelling on this earth? Well, we know what he's, what he's doing and what he's even called. Let me give you a few scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Um, it says, um, you know, Paul said, speaking of Satan, he in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ um, uh, who is the image of God should shine unto them. What's he doing? He's the God of this world, according to Paul the apostle. That's Satan. That's one of his titles. Jesus talked about uh, Satan uh, many times, um, three of which uh, he called Satan the prince of this world. Satan is the prince of this world. This explains a lot, by the way, of who's really in control of this world right now. 
Even when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said, if you bow down, I'll give you the kingdom of this world. Jesus didn't make the argument that they're not yours to give. That's not what Jesus said. Why? Because actually they were. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, we, in essence, turned the title deed of planet Earth over to Satan. He's the prince of this world. He's the God of this world. He's even sort of the uh, rightful owner of this world. And that title deed, described in the Bible as a scroll with seven seals, um, somebody has to be worthy to open up that title deed and crack those seven seals. And in the book of Revelation, John says, who's worthy? You know, they're like, oh no, he starts weeping because it doesn't seem like there's anybody who's worthy to open the seals of this book. And then along comes one who is worthy to open the title deed to planet earth. Anybody want to guess that is? Jesus, right. Um, so Satan is the God of this world. And by the way, um, that's a little G. Uh, it should be <laughs> a little G. He's not, he's a fake God. He's a false God of this world is the idea there. Um, but what's he doing? Uh, what's Satan doing in this world? Well, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, we, we read back to our, you know, text in Revelation chapter 12. Um, uh, let's, let's go back to, to verse nine real quick. Um, it says, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So, so now we see that, that Satan is cast out to the earth permanently and no longer has access at all to heaven. That's gonna happen during this end. And then verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God night and day. Verse 11, and they um, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Now this is great. So, so this Satan as he is now, accusing the brethren before God day and night, having access to heaven, just like in Job's day. He has access to God that way. But in Revelation 12, we read, it's during the tribulation period where Satan will be permanently cast out of heaven, no longer able to accuse the brethren night and day. That's gonna be great. And how, by the way, are those tribulation saints, the people who accept Christ during the tribulation, gonna overcome you know, the, the uh, accusation of the devil? By the blood of the lamb. That's the same way you and I have overcome the accusation of the, of the devil. Same with those people in Revelation chapter 12. So, um, so kind, of, kind of a fascinating deal here as we kind of see Revelation 12, but let's just read on verse in, in chapter 12, if you're still with me. Um, verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now question, before we read on here in this passage. Um, so, so Satan has nowhere else to go, he's trapped. Does that remind you of Antiochus Epiphanes? Remember when the sh ships of Shittim came and um, uh, wouldn't let him do anything? What, 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 did, what was his response when he had nowhere off, left to go? Yes, he made war against Israel. Just like here, when Satan's cast out of heaven and has no more access, check out verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, who's that? Israel, which brought forth the man-child, which is Jesus. 
And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, which is Petra, unto her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of its mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keeps, her, uh, keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. These Jews, after the abomination of desolation, will see that not only was Antichrist not the Messiah, but they'll realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And there, um, man, Jesus is gonna take those Jews that are now believers in Jesus, and they're gonna go to the wilderness of Petra and um, they're gonna be protected. So, you know, what we see here in our text here in Revelation 12, 16, and the earth, it says, help the woman and open her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. What's all that about? I don't have the foggiest idea. All we know is this, um, that the Antichrist and Satan will make war against the Jews. The Jews are gonna flee to Petra and he's gonna pour out some kind of a flood. And, and man, you can speculate um, people guess, what, what kind of a, you know, attack will this be? Some would say it's some kind of a chemical attack or some kind of a, you know, weapon that we don't even really know about yet that's gonna pour out this flood uh, on these Jews, but somehow the earth is gonna help, help the Jews. Um, now, um, this is where Petra does make it interesting. Um, and people have said, well, Petra is this place where they're gonna hide because strategically, Geographically, it's really hard to attack Petra, and it's true. I've been to Petra uh, nine times, and uh, uh, one time I spent three days walking through this place called Petra. Here's some video footage that we shot one of the recent times Micah and I were walking through here and taking some of these shots. If you remember, I did a Sunday teaching from one of the cliffs in Petra a few years back, uh, and, and we piped it back here to you guys. But um, you know, you've seen this in movies because it's such a spectacular site. This is called the Temple Treasury there in Petra, but this is the entry. Uh, that's, that's just the entryway into, into this massive canyon. Um, and if you look at the outsides of the canyon, it's extremely rugged. This is called the Seek, this little crack that you walk through. You know, it, you know it's, at its widest, it's like maybe 50 feet wide. At its narrowest, it's maybe nine feet wide. And you can only get to this canyon through this Seek. And so it's really an amazing place geographically. Um, it was called the Lost City of Petra because people didn't even, it was a legend, like Atlantis. People didn't even believe that it existed. But um, that's the temple monastery and that, that thing's huge um, there. But the reason I kind of show you some of this is it's a real place. They found it back in the 1800s, but uh, that's a whole nother story. But this whole idea of Petra, some people say, well, it's the earth that's gonna help her. So they're gonna try to attack, but they'll be safe in the fortress of Petra. I'm not sure that's really uh, gonna happen in a real practical way. And I'll tell you why. Because all you need is a few missiles to kind of go up and over and down into Petra and uh, bada boom, uh, you, you got them. So I, I don't think it's gonna be like logistically, they're gonna be safe because the earth is a, like a great stronghold. 
I think it's gonna be something more along the lines of, remember when, um, remember when uh, you know, the Jews had their backs to the Red Sea and they had Pihiroth on the right and Migdal on the left and they were trapped. And what was it that kept the Egyptian army from being able to attack the Jews? Anybody? Big pillar of fire. Remember that? Fire was just, and they're like, oh, I guess we have to wait for the fire to kind of go out before we can get to those Jews. And the Jews were passing across the sea. Um, you know, the Lord protected Israel from Pharaoh and there were two major, I would say, major miracles. One, the sea was opening and two, there was a fire uh, thing holding back the Egyptians. That's pretty cool. And I, I believe that it's gonna be something on that scale where when it says the earth will help the woman, I, maybe he pours out some chemical gas and the earth literally will open up like the days of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, if you remember that story in the Bible, where the earth opens up and swallows up whatever chemical they pour out or whatever it is, God is gonna supernaturally protect the Jews as we read it here in Revelation chapter 12 from the attack, um, you know, here. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting to me um, that we've got this amazing story of, um, of the earth helping the woman. Um, and, and, um, and that's really being what we're seeing described here in, in chapter 12, verse one. Yeah, chapter 12 of Revelation explains that single verse. Michael's gonna stand up, gonna throw Satan out of heaven. He'll be restricted now to this earth, no longer accusing the brethren in heaven day and night. And he's gonna be ticked when he's thrown down to the earth. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna make war against the woman, the Jews. Um, and, and that's gonna be at the end of the tribulation. Now back to Daniel 12 what we see is he's, Michael the prince is gonna stand up for the people and there shall be a time of trouble. That's the, the three and a half years of the troublous time of the great tribulation, um, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. So that's kind of what we were talking about there is what happened in Revelation 12. Are you guys with me on that? Interesting parallel. And then the second part of verse one, and at that time thy people, the Jews shall be delivered, everyone that uh, shall be found written in the book. I love this because um, when will the Jews really be saved? Um, during the time of their flight uh, into Petra or the part of Edom and Moab. Um, there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about this. In fact, one of my favorites is Ezekiel um, chapter 20. Uh, you can jot this down, Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. Um, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and a uh, stretched out arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you and I will bring you out from the people and I will gather you out of the countries wherein you're scattered, scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and, and with fury poured out. Now look at verse 35. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there I will I plead with you face to face. Like as when I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, that's judgment. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. I believe Ezekiel, this passage is talking about the regathering of Israel, which we're seeing as we speak. But there in verse 35, when it says, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and I will plead with you face to face, that's what's gonna happen when the Jews go off to Petra. 
uh, with the abomination of desolation. It all fits together. All these things correlate quite profoundly. Well, that's just verse one. <laughs> verse two, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this verse is chock full of um, controversy, uh, but also confusion. Um, and so you kind of have to carefully take a look at this. Uh, and this is important. First of all, let's talk about soul sleep. Uh, some of you, if you were raised in certain denominations, you were taught that when you die, you're, you go to the grave and your soul is laying there asleep until the resurrection. Um, and, and some would say that's at the rapture of the church, depending on which group you're with, or uh, maybe even at the end of the millennial kingdom. Some people say that. Um, but there's different views on, on that. The question is, do you, does your soul just go to sleep when you die? Um, I, I believe the answer is very clearly no. I'm not a proponent of soul sleep. Um, and um, I think what did us a, a little bit of a disservice is there was an idiom um, where the Jews would say, and so Abraham slept with his fathers. Um, and it was sort of an idiom saying that he went to sleep. And so people jumped on that and said, okay, so that means he's asleep in the grave. Um, and, and I'd be tempted to believe that if that's all we had, but really there's a lot of verses that talk about what happens after you die. So soul sleep, what are some scriptures? We'll jot these down. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 is one of my favorites that reminds me, we are confident. Uh, I love it that he says this too. We're not, we're, we think this is possible, no. We are confident, I say, Paul says, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The, the, the language here is saying that it, it, when, when you die, your soul, uh, when it departs from the body, it's not gonna just lay there in the grave with your decomposing body. Um, but actually to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul the apostle did not believe in soul sleep and I'll tell you why. Look at Philippians chapter, two, uh, chapter one, verse 22 uh, and verse 23. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what shall I choose? I wot not, for I am in a straight betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Now this is the King James and it's a little tricky, but basically what he's saying is, man, um, if I was just going with my own feelings, um, I'd rather die and be with the Lord. I wish I could die right now. Does any, don't raise your hand. Any of you guys sometimes feel like, man, I'd rather die right now and go to heaven. Like, like that's, I'd just be really, now I know that sounds masochistic, suicidal, and don't call the services and all that. Um, but, but sometimes you get to that place, you know, it'd be just better off if I were dead. But there's a bad way to say that, but Paul's saying, you know what? I'm so excited to be with the Lord. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of betwixt, I'm, I'm in a predicament. That's when he says, for I am in a straight betwixt two. That's just saying, what a predicament having a desire to depart, that is to die, and to be with Christ, which is far better. And then he goes on and says, but I, I know that the Lord has work for me to do here, so I'm gonna faithfully execute the work that I'm called to do, and the Lord will take me when I'm ready. But this little verse is basically saying, I, I kinda wish I could die, because if I died today, I would be with Christ. Um, do you see how soul sleep doesn't figure into Paul's um, narrative here? And I think Paul knew and was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but obtained salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, 
There's that word sleep, Uh uh-oh. We should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify us, uh, edify one another, even also as you do. So this verse is great, reminding us that we're not appointed to wrath as Christians. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that's, uh, um, I mean, some people say, well, we're gonna go through the tribulation. It's called the time of God's wrath, the wrath of the lamb, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble, not the church's trouble. Uh, the church wasn't in the first 69 weeks of Daniel. Why would it be in the last 70th week of Daniel? There's all these reasons, but this is a big one. We're not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, but then it says, whether we wake or sleep, and, and you could put in there, whether we're alive or dead, we should live together with him. When you die, one of the things you get to do is live with Christ as a Christian. And there's comfort found there. Um, and, and then also, uh, soul sleep doesn't fit this narrative of Luke 23, 42 through 43. Um, the, the thief on the cross said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, oh, in a thousand years when you come out of your soul sleep, then you'll be with me in paradise. No, that's not what it says. It, Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There was no soul sleep involved with the thief on the cross. So don't get a little idiom of he slept with his fathers being an idiom for death. Uh, Don't get that confused with what happens when you die. I believe when you die, um, if you're a Christian, you go to heaven to be with the Lord. Um, And and, and when you die, that's where you'll be forever with the Lord. You'll be with the Lord. Wherever the Lord is, that's where you'll be. So if the Lord is returning, his second coming, guess what? You get to come with him because you'll ever be with the Lord. Um, you'll go to heaven, uh, you'll be there. And even if the rapture of the church happens, we'll be taken up into heaven, we'll be with the Lord. And then if the Lord returns, uh, you know, seven years later or whatever the perspective is in time in heaven, then we return with the Lord uh, with ten thousands of his saints, Revelation 19. So soul, soul sleep is, I think, um, you know, a, a, a teaching that is erroneous and, um, and it, it causes all kinds of confusion and trouble if you read the rest of the Bible. So I just wanna nudge you in that direction. You can do further research. I just gave you several verses that kind of remind us of that. So soul sleep is an important thing to know that is not in the Bible, uh, as it turns out. The second challenge of this verse two is the two resurrections. Did you see two resurrections there? It says in verse two, many of them that sleep or dead in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it, it's interesting because it says that, um, you know, that, that they're, they're gonna sort of awake. Um, so resurrection, we always talk about resurrection and think of the Christian who gets to raise from the dead. But did you know the non-Christian has a resurrection too? Uh, And it's a really scary resurrection. It's one you should know about. Guess what? I gave you a whole chapter of the book of Revelation that's a commentary on verse one of chapter 12. Well, there's a whole chapter that's a commentary on verse two of of Daniel chapter chapter 12, verse two. Let's flip over to that chapter if you would. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, and they're linked by the way. Chapter 12 of Revelation and chapter 20 are linked This is gonna connect some dots, hopefully, for us. We don't have time to go through the whole uh, chapter completely, but we'll we'll cover a good chunk of it here. Revelation 20, let's start in verse four. 
It says in Revelation 20, verse four, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark or his vaccine. Oh wait, no, I didn't didn't say that. No. Um, Let me use this moment to explain the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Uh, I wanna say that. Some people believe that. Um, The mark of the beast is gonna happen during the tribulation, um, which we're not in yet. And it's also gonna happen um, where you will be aligning yourself with a single, very clear, a single world leader called Antichrist. When you take the mark of the beast, you'll know you'll be taking his number and his mark and you won't be accidentally, oh, oops, I accidentally took the mark of the beast. That's not gonna happen. You're gonna be willingly taking this this, um, mark in your forehead or in your right hand uh, and it's gonna be very clear. That's gonna happen during the tribulation. So I believe as the rapture of the church is gonna happen before the the tribulation begins, we're not even gonna be put in that dilemma, do you take the mark or don't you? Um, I think we're gonna be in heaven. And so that's kind of important. So who are these people that received? They, it says they, in the middle of verse four, they did not receive his image, neither had they received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Um, so question, who are these people talked about in verse four? Anybody? Right, the tribulation saints those that were not raptured because they weren't saved when the rapture of the church happens. After the rapture of the church, tribulation starts, but there are gonna be many people who will come to know Christ during the tribulation. Praise the Lord for that. And I believe it'll be a lot of people. Maybe it'll be some of your family members that thought you were wacko. I can't believe you sat there on those first Fridays of each month watching that Looney Tune pastor talk about the mark of the beast and the rapture of the church. But once you're raptured, a lot of those people will be saying, "Uh, wait a minute, it's exactly what grandma was saying. Um, that, that the mark of the beast is now up and there'll be people to realize, uh, you know what, they were right. And they will not be duped by this coming world leader and they will not take his mark and they will be saved eternally. But this gets pretty brutal. It says, but they will not take his mark and they'll be beheaded um, for not uh, worshiping the image of the beast. Um, you know, it's interesting because even 20, 30 years ago, the idea of beheading was just something that ISIS was doing over there in the Middle East. But it's funny, if you, if you actually study the morbid um, uh, in, you know, topic of beheading, um, people are getting back to beheading people again. Even nations and governments are saying, you know, it's really one of the most humane ways to kill people is by beheading. And there's actually some interesting articles you can find about the process of beheading and how people are kind of, you know, that's a better way to go than the, you know, lethal injection or some of these other things that we've done. And the Bible says that this, this world leader, Antichrist, that'll be his method. It'll be just like the French Bastille, you know, um, and these beheadings are gonna happen if you are living in the tribulation and you don't take the mark of the beast. Um, it's not a way to get ahead during that time. <laughs> Sorry, just try to bring a little humor into uh, something that's kind of horrible. Um, but those people that have died during that tribulation period, it says they will live and reign with Christ a thousand years. That thousand years is called the millennium, the millennial kingdom. Okay, so little point of reference of where we're at. Now, verse five, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part of the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now this is confusing for people, but what we have here is two resurrections. Verse five, the first resurrection. He says, now this is the first resurrection. Now here's the mistake people make on this one. The first resurrection is not a point in time. It is a class of people. There are people that belong to the first resurrection and there are people that belong to the second resurrection. And the people that are part of the first resurrection are these people that are being described, people that accepted Christ, were killed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Um, but um, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were, were finished. So, so who are these people? Um, the, the rest of the dead is the unsaved, okay? You can mark them as sort of the unsaved people. Um, but when it says, until the thousand years were finished, those rest of the dead will not live again. And you know, the question is about that is, um, who, are, who are those people, the rest of them? They're the unsaved. And if they're dead, they're probably in a place called Hades. Remember the bad part of Abraham's bosom? That's all gonna be taken back up when? At the end of the millennial kingdom. Um, not the people in the paradise side. Remember Luke 16? How did the people in paradise in Luke 16, Jesus' story of Hades, remember Abraham's bosom? There was the rich guy and, the, and then there was Lazarus. Where did Lazarus and all the believers go and when did they get to go to heaven? Anybody? When did that happen? When Jesus died on the cross, then what happened? He first descended before he ascended. Remember this? And Ephesians tells us this. And he set captivity captive. That is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, now don't, don't listen to these, uh, who is it? Ken Copeland, I think, teaches that Jesus went to hell and burned for you and all this stuff. That's not what happened there. Um, uh, don't listen to Copeland. Uh, his doctrine is really, really wacko. Um, but he, he makes that argument that Jesus burned and the little worm and all this stuff that dies. It's a whole another thing. But, um, but no, Jesus went down into Abraham's bosom preached to the demons, not for salvation, but of their doom, and then led captivity captive. Abraham, the Old Testament saints that were all in that paradise place, along with the thief on the cross that joined him that very day. He led captivity captive, he that first, before he ascended, he first descended and led captivity captive. So the, the paradise side of heaven was retired at that point, but the bad side, or Hades, Sheol, um, that part's still in business. Remember the guy Lazarus, oh, if I could only have a, just a drop of water on the tip of my tongue. Uh, and he couldn't uh, at that point. That's, that area is gonna be retired at the end of the thousand year period called the millennial kingdom. And they'll be sort of resurrected from that place. By the way, the, one of the names of that place is death. Um, Sheol, the grave, um, Hades, those late names of the Old Testament. It's all speaking of death and hell. So these people are in, in a place called death. So they're there until the thousand years be over with. That's the unsaved people, both Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation period. Whoever died unsaved will be in that place until the great white throne judgment where they'll be resurrected to the second death. Okay, now I'll show you how I, what I mean there in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so the rest of the dead, um, the unsaved, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. That's those people I was just talking about. 
But this is the first resurrection. The people that, verse four, they that lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Not a time, but a, a, a group of people or a class of people. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, verse six, on such the second death has no power. If you're saved and you're part of the first resurrection, you will have no problem or you're not, don't have to be worried about the great white throne or the resurrection unto death, the second resurrection unto death. So you could, call, you could call it this, the first resurrection is a resurrection unto life, the second resurrection is a resurrection unto death eternal. So there's the first one and the second one. Which one do you wanna be a part of? First. And if you're saved, you are gonna be part of that. Um, it's a class of people and you're part of that if you're a Christian. Now, um, let's, let's jump forward to verse 11. I wish we had time to do this whole chapter because Revelation 20 really defines this. But so, so, so we've got this first and second. Now we're gonna hear more about the second death in just a second, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it whose faith, face uh, the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So there's a book here that's got all their works. And remember, you're gonna be judged by your sins unless Jesus died for your sins and you received that, where your sins are blotted away and there's no record of those sins. But the people that aren't saved by Christ, they still have their sins recorded in these books. So they'll stand before the great white throne saying, and the Lord said, well, let's see what you did. Were you perfect? And they'll look and you'll see all these indictments. It's like, you know, if you were standing before a judge and they had all the indictments of crimes that you have done, that's what these books are gonna be. So those things were written in book according to their works. And verse three, the sea, what is the sea a, a picture of? The nations of the world. The sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead. That's Hades and Sheol. Okay, are you remember following with me? They're taken up. Uh, Hades and Sheol, death and hell, delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And, verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Um, this, or you might say the second resurrection unto death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. By the, word, the way, the word lake of fire, that phrase, is the Greek word Gehenna, which is traditionally what we all know as hell. Uh, people get confused. You know, they think that if you die and you're not a Christian today, you go to hell, Gehenna, but you don't. You go to Hades and Sheol, uh, the paradise of bad side of Abraham's bosom until the end of the millennial kingdom where you'll stand before the great white throne. And that's when everyone that is unsaved, including Satan and his demons and all that will be cast into that as well. By the way, let's, I did skip over something kind of important. Um, uh, look at verse nine of this chapter. They that went up for the breadth of the earth encompassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city. The fire came down from God out of heaven, devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. What's the Greek word for that? Gehenna. And uh, the fire and brimstone, and where the, the beast and the false prophet are. See, at this point in Revelation 20, uh, after the second coming of Christ, chapter 19 of Revelation, the devil, false prophet, and antichrist, the unholy trinity, all three of them are cast for eternal into the lake of fire. And what's gonna happen there? Um, the false prophet and all these guys, and it says they shall be tormented 
day and night forever and ever. That's the nature of this place called Gehenna. There's a new, I shouldn't say new, it's actually, there's a lot of people that taught it in the old days, but um, where they talk about total annihilation, where you die and you're just in annihilation. Um, I, I would, you know, there's a part of me that oh, wishes so much that were true. Um, the, if you believed you died as a sinner and you just died, you're thrown into Gehenna and suddenly you just cease to exist forever and ever, annihilation as some people teach it. Um, I'd say that's not a bad way to go. Honestly, if, if you just cease to exist for all eternity, that's great. The problem, and so there's, there's actually churches and Bible teachers are saying, yeah, we, we believe in a nihilism where basically, you know, everybody just dies. I don't believe, if you read the whole Bible, um, the Bible sort of teaches about this place of eternal, that the soul of humanity is an eternal soul. That's why this whole discussion is about one resurrection. One's a resurrection unto eternal life, and the other one is a resurrection to eternal death. And it's gonna be a place like for Satan and his false prophet and his antichrist. Uh, and antichrist, by the way, is like a human like us. And what's gonna happen to them? They're gonna go into the lake of fire, Gehenna, where they'll be torment, tormented, not annihilation, tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, you, you know, there's this temptation to make hell not so bad. Um, because, well, God of love wouldn't throw people in hell. It's such a false dilemma to say that. There's a God of love who gave everyone in this world a chance to, including Satan himself, to, to, to do the right thing. Um, but there's gonna be people who just say, nope, we wanna do it our way. We don't like God, we're not gonna follow God. And they're gonna march their own way into hell, literally kind of having to step over the dead body of the son of God to get there. Um, and I believe that while we might say, well, that's not fair. Even when it's all said and done, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we will all declare righteous and true are his judgments. I know hell is kind of a heavy subject, but these people that are trying to make hell not so big or like, a, like it's, it's annihilation, I, I don't believe that's an honest, real um, depiction of what the Bible says, even when you read Revelation 20. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life, verse 15, was cast in the lake of fire. If you're not a Christian, and if you're watching online or if you're here tonight, somebody dragged you here on a Wednesday night, um, more than any of these fancy prophecies and stuff, uh, the whole point of this is to make sure that we're saved and that you're, you, you, you've been forgiven for your sins. Um, you don't wanna be at this great white throne judgment. If you're a believer, you'll be either raptured into heaven or you'll die and go to heaven and it's a win-win. But if you're not a believer and if you die in your sins, then you're eternally lost not in annihilation, but eternal torment, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, the Bible says. That doesn't sound like annihilation to me. Uh, maybe for a few seconds you weep and wail and gnash your teeth, maybe a millisecond. Uh, no, eternal death is what it's talked about. Well, bro, what does that have to do with the book of Daniel? Okay, let's go back to Daniel 12. Uh, verse two. It says, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Does that make sense now? All that, all that description was to make verse two uh, 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 palpable. Verse three, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament 
and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. We talked about that on Sunday and what a glorious uh, promise that is. Those that turn uh, to, to uh, people to righteousness is really leading people to Christ. And we, we talked about that and what a beautiful thing. So does your countenance the light, light up Jesus and tell people of Jesus? That's what we talked about. Verse four, but thou, o Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Man, I could talk about this for a long time, <laughs> longer than what we just did in verse two, but I won't. I'm gonna, I'm gonna resist the temptation. Um, Isaac Newton, who was a Bible believer, uh, Discover Magazine's number one scientist in all the world's history, was a guy who, through this verse, doing the original Hebrew, the idea of people going to and fro is the idea that in their lifetime they'd go back and forth over the whole earth. And he, he thought, now what, what does that mean? Like the language of the Hebrew is a little more mysterious. It's not just, you know, you, you might say, I went to and fro when I went shopping, I went, you know, to, to that store and then I went over there and I went to and fro. The idea here in the Hebrew is over all the earth. People were traveling the earth. And so Isaac Newton said, the Bible predicts this will happen. And he said, for this to happen, people will have to travel speeds in excess of 50 miles per hour. Um, he says, it's just gonna have to happen. He was using the Bible as his, uh, Voltaire, who is a contemporary and also um, not a believer in God. Um, uh, he said, Isaac Newton's an idiot. Um, everybody knows that if somebody goes past 40 miles an hour, their heart stops. Um, there was this big debate between Isaac Newton and uh, Voltaire. And now we know who's, most of you probably went a little over 40 miles per hour on your way to church tonight. Some of us more than double that. Um, but knowledge shall be increased, the Bible says. Knowledge shall increase. And the idea of the word increase there, again in the Hebrew, is exponentially with rapidity, knowledge will increase. And boy, if you, have you ever seen a graph? Some of you probably have seen these because they do this once in a while and they talk about how knowledge has just skyrocketed just in the last few years. Somebody said that um, every one second, 3,000 page, 3, pages of new scientific information is created on the earth uh, by humans. 3,000 pages of information every second. Um, we're learning more and more about this and that and the other thing and our science and our knowledge is increasing and we're doing more in space and weaponry and uh, not so much of medicine, but other things. No, I'm just, just kidding. But we really have, we've, we've increased and, and the exponential increasing of knowledge um, is one of the signs that we're nearing the end because the, here it says, this book's gonna be sealed up until the end when people start going to and fro all over the earth. You know, it's in, in you know, it's amazing within the last hundred years, we've been going to and fro with uh, you know, flight and travel back and forth all over the earth. Um, and it's really following that perfectly. Verse five, then I, Daniel, looked and behold. Now, now you kind of understand there was a shift of gear here. Uh, Gabriel was telling everything right up until um, verse four. That was Gabriel telling the vision. But do you remember when Daniel first started getting the vision, chapter, chapter 10, where was he? He was by a river and he saw a guy in fine linen. Remember that? Who was the guy in fine linen? We believe it was Jesus um, that was there uh, back in chapter 10. You'll have to go back and review that as we looked at that. And then Gabriel came and gave, started giving him the message. So now Gabriel, it seems that he's kind of silenced 
And Daniel looks back and sees the river and the guy with linen. Um, and so it says here in verse, uh, verse five, it says, then I, Daniel, looked and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of river and the other on the outside of the bank of river. And one said uh, to the man clothed in linen, that's who we believe to be Jesus, um, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Um, good question. Daniel asks a, a logical question, how long till all this stuff comes to pass? And then verse seven, and I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Okay, so there's a lot here and we're running out of time, but um, remember how we debated who the man in linen was in chapter 10? And I gave you a few points of why some people believe it's not Christ and they think it might be angel Gabriel. Um, and then I gave you some other arguments of why it probably could be Christ and what have you. One of the arguments that it's not Christ is because of what he says here when he uh, lifts up his hands to heaven and swears to him that lives forever. That sounds like somebody not Christ because Christ is the one who lives forever. Um, or God the Father is eternal in nature. But the argument there is, uh, you know, to me, um, um, debatable because <clears throat> even Jesus prayed to the Father. So this is an appearance of Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, in a Christ Christophany or a theophany. And so it could be Christ doing what he did when he came in his first coming, as he would, you know, w uh, pray to the Father in heaven and give glory to him. <clears throat> so there, there's still debate there and what have you, but be that as it may, uh, you can still make that study if you want and try to figure out who the man in linen is. It's kind of a mystery. But it says, this is all gonna happen in uh, uh, swearing by him that lever, it shall be for a time, times and a half time when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So he's saying from the time of the abomination of desolation, the Jews will be scattered at that point. Um, and they'll run to Petra or um, Jordan, the country Jordan. And then at the end of that three and a half years, the 1,260 days or time times and a half times or three and a half years, we've studied this in depth if you're just joining us tonight. Uh, sorry about the time times and a half time. We already looked at that pretty in depth, but that's what we're talking about. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. And verse eight, I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, oh my Lord, what shall the end of these things be? Or, you know, what, what shall the, be the end of these things? He's, he, <clears throat> do you get a sense Daniel's just totally confused? And I don't blame him. You know, we have the advantage of hindsight for much of the book of Daniel. Daniel had none of that. So he's like, what in the world, what's going on? Um, and he said, verse nine, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. <clears throat> this is the puzzle thing that we were talking about. Um, right now, Daniel just sees a pile of puzzle pieces, um, but they would be sealed up until the time of the end. The closer we get to the end, the, the picture would come into view. <clears throat> and I believe we're living in days where the book of Daniel, most of it makes perfect sense. <clears throat> I think we can explain most of it. Some of it's a little mystery, like who's the man in linen? There's another couple of mysteries that we have coming up here, uh, 30 days and 45 days. 
a total of 75 days that are hard to account for. Let's take a look and then we'll be finished. It says, um, go thy way, Daniel. The words are sealed up till the time of the end. Um, Verse 10. It says, many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Now, this is interesting, many shall be purified. Um, This is really what we're talking about from Zechariah. Um, chapter 13, verses eight and nine. Um, Zechariah, by the way, gives us all kinds of end times parallels to this time period. In Zechariah 13, eight, nine, it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left. So two thirds will die in that land in the tribulation period. And I will bring the third part through the fire, will refine them as silver as refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name and and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. This is what we're talking about here. Uh, Many shall be purified, verse 10 of our text here, um, but many shall do wickedly and and reject the Lord. And that's what this is, that Zechariah is talking about but the wise shall understand. Verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Uh Uh-oh, this is the confusion. What's the number of the three and a half years if you're using the Gregorian, uh, not the Gregorian, but the lunar calendar of the Jews? It's, it's supposed to be 1,260 days, three and a half years. Why do we now suddenly have 1,290 days? We just added 30 days to the number. And the answer is, don't know. But there's speculation, and, and this get, gets kind of confusing, but, um, but uh, 1,290 days, at why the additional ni- uh, 30 days? Let me give you a, a few possible uh, answers. Number one, um, Maybe it's 30 days of prep time before the millennial kingdom. Do you remember after the Antiochus Epiphanes situation, the temple was defiled in Jerusalem and uh, it had to be cleansed and the whole you know, Hanukkah and Festival of Lights was the period of time of the cleansing of the temple. Some suggest this 30 days is a period of cleansing um, uh, before the millennial kingdom really kicks into gear. Some people say that. Um, Another one is that um, this is Matthew 24, preparation of the nations of the separating of the sheep and the goats. Uh, you guys know about the judgment of the sheep and goat judgment? Some say it's gonna happen during this time. After the tribulation, there's a 30 days of the separation of the nations and the, how they treated Israel. Uh, that's what that's about. Uh, what are we, a third possible theory, um, that the land of Israel will be cleansed um, just the whole land, not just the temple, but it'll be so devastated during the tribulation, it'll take 30 days. 30 days seems a little short to me. You say, well, God can do anything, so why wouldn't it be one day? Why can't God just go, ping, it's all restored? Uh, why 30 days? I don't know, but some say that. Um, now, here's where it gets a little mind-bending. Some say the 30 days happens before the abomination of desolation. Um, if you look back at our verse, did you see what it said? It says in verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice be taken away, that's the first thing, and then bring 30 days after that, then the abomination that make it desolate set up. Some people put the 30 days, additional days, um, before the, the, the 1,260 days 
Um, the, the sacrifice is taken away. 30 days later, he commits the abomination of desolation. Could be, it's an interesting theory. Um, and you say, okay, great, great. There's, there's a few theories, um, but now we even add more to the trouble. Verse 12, blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the, to the thousand three hundred and um, five and thirty days. Huh? Now we got 1,335 days, an additional 45 days. Um, and so what is that? And that, so it's a total of 75 days if you do the 45 and the 30. And, and, and some of the same reasons are given. Maybe it's time of cleansing, time of preparation. Maybe that's when the millennial kingdom will officially begin when Christ is crowned. Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, and you can go and search uh, people who've studied this and there's all kinds of interesting things about that. So those are time periods you should at least know about. 1,290 and 1,335 things, things to think about. Verse 13. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. <laughs> the end. Now, as we close tonight, um, the book of Daniel and all the prophecy in this book is powerful and great. And some of it's mind-bending and challenging and all that, but a lot of it's very much hopeful. We know what's gonna happen. You know, even though the church age is not really mentioned in the book of Daniel, just the absence of it is wonderful. The reason we don't read about the church or the rapture of the church in Daniel is because the book of Daniel is for the people of Israel and Jerusalem, the Jews. So that should bring comfort to the Gentile church or anyone who's saved by Christ in these days. But as we read about the great prophecies, Daniel, don't forget Daniel, the man himself. Man, I just hope we can remember that he was such a great man of prayer, a man to emulate, a guy in the first six chapters, don't forget that part. It's easy to be enthralled and enthused by you know, Daniel's prophecies, but don't forget to be impressed by just this person who went about the king's business, even though he didn't understand hardly anything that he wrote. And you may not understand even some of the stuff we talked about tonight. Don't be frustrated by that. I have to say, some people get frustrated and they say, oh, I don't understand all that stuff Brett was talking about, so I give up. But you also have to understand, this is one of those things that takes time as you're studying the Bible. Don't just give up because we don't understand all the details. Um, I believe that the, the Bible comes alive as we just keep reading and then the little puzzle pieces just keep snapping into place and eventually in time, they all start making a, a very clear picture. Uh, some of you have been studying the Bible for a long time and you know what I'm talking about. It's so fun. The Bible is this intricate message system where God gives us his word and it just is a fun thing to put some time and study to. Amen? Amen. Book of Hosea. Wow. Are you guys ready for that? You might bring your Kleenex for Hosea. Lord, how thankful we are for your word and I pray that you just bless um, this congregation, both here in the room, but also online that have been traveling with us through this book. I pray, Lord, that, um, that your word would be meditated upon in our hearts and our minds day and night. And then like a tree will be firmly planted and rooted by the river of water. Lord, um, just make our, our foundation of your word stronger and stronger as the years go by. So Lord, we, we're so thankful to have heard from you. And now just give us understanding. Bless these, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.